Welcome to the Designers Institute of New Zealand podcast series, DCAST. My name is Andy Flukowski. I am the president of the Designers Institute and also a partner at RCG Architecture and Property. Today, we are fortunate to have Nick Mowbray join us. Nick is the co-founder and CEO of Zuru and also the partner brands with Zuru Edge, including Rascal and Friends, Monday Hair Care, Nude Hair Food. Nick is also the EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hey, first off, judging by your Instagram and the numerous brands and bits and pieces that you've been pushing this year, you'd think you'd be, you know, incredibly short for time. But I see you've been on the golf course probably a hell of a lot more than, um, <laughs> you know, I'd like to be doing over the last couple of weeks anyway. How has 2020 been for you? And is everything under control? It's been a crazy year. And it's been a year where everything's kind of changed how we work. I was meant to be spending most of this year in the US and that obviously all changed and mm. we've learned to operate in, in new ways and in many respects has actually been really productive. Mm-hmm. On the golf side, yeah, I'm addicted to it. I've picked it up in the last year and it's truly an addiction, but I almost find like it's a little bit of meditation. It's like my one break mentally. Yes. I get out there and I compete with myself and you can never master it and it is kind of, yeah, like meditation for me in a way, just focusing on that ball. So it makes my brain slow down. So and the game's improving. Way to go to become good. I'm, I'm always see myself as a bit more of a um a social golfer, where I think I really enjoy it, but I never take it. Or I have never been able to take it seriously enough to just find the time to go and spend that time enjoying it. But no, I, I really do enjoy getting out. Yeah, it takes real dedication. So I've I've just started having. Well, I had my second lesson ever yesterday. Oh, it's I was awesome. meant to have like a bunch this week, and now we're back into lockdown so that's not going to happen so i'm a bit upset but not to worry mate i think this must be the first podcast maybe taking place you know season two of new zealand's lockdown this year which is a a, a bizarre place to find ourselves in i guess on that topic as well you've also been instrumental with the acquisition and coordination of a lot of the the ppe to help with new zealand's covid battle can you can you tell us a little bit how how this has eventuated and, and you've come to be in this position yeah, I guess I was pretty vocal early on about us shutting down our border. And I was sort of looking at what was happening. Well, at least we had a front row seat in terms of what, ha- what was happening up in China and how they dealt with it. And mm. we also have an office in, the, in, in what was the red zone in Italy there. Oh, wow. And we kind of saw front line what was happening there as well. So we were quite vocal really early on about shutting down the border. And at that stage, no one really agreed with us. Mm. And I, I guess we were looking at the situation down in Wellington and looking at the fact that the whole world was competing for PPE and win that race. And we've obviously got thousands of people on the ground up there. So we just sent, I think, 100 people or so out on the ground getting batteries and suppliers wow. and placing deposits and just trying to secure as much PPE as we could. So I think we shipped like 120 million pieces of PPE to New Zealand and charged a bunch of planes in those, early, in those early days where it was almost impossible to get any air freight sent and, and got a bunch of them into the country. And, and now I guess we're, we're dealing with it a little bit again um, today. So and you were able to re-gear the factories to a degree to help with some of the manufacture of that equipment and whatnot as well? And not our factories, not our factories. Con- the contacts out. over there. Yeah, we went out and vetted, yeah, hundreds, literally hundreds of different suppliers. It's um, incredible. Over a matter of weeks, we had people out on the ground and QCQA team as well. And we're just trying to work out how to secure as much PPEP as PPE as we could for, for the country. Yes. Oh, well done. That's incredible. Hey, now, for those uh, probably unaware of your story, Nick, and this is probably one you've told uh, a million times before, but I I will um, run through it quickly just for the context of the conversation. But it's a journey really underpinned by risk and reward, I think trial and error and sheer determination. 
And just for our listeners, you set out in 2003 as a teenager to China with a small loan from your parents. You set about creating one of the largest boy empires on the planet. I think it's fair to say that that journey's come with its fair share of hurdles and Hollywood-esque drama, if I can put it that way at times. But Nick, with little experience back in those early years, not speaking the local language and with minimal funding, what was it that you drew on at the time that's really set the foundations for, for where we see where you're at today with, with Zuri and the, the other brand? Look, I think naivety actually is quite a good thing to have because probably if we look back and look what we went through, we might not have done it. Mm. And I also think you've got to have confidence in yourself confidence yes. in yourself is a choice and you've got to make that choice and at the end of the day you've just got to back yourself mm. to assist and climb that hill and get to the top and i think that's what it's about it's really about going through that journey you're going to get knocked down lots and mm. lots and lots of times and you just have to tell yourself that you're going to keep getting back up and it's really hard and it takes that dedication and persistence for a really long period of time and an applied period of time and you gradually get better and better at what you do um, and you just have to have that mindset that I'm going to get up and I'm going to improve every day and we're going to be better at what we do mm. every single day. And then eventually you wake up and you get there and it happens. And I guess that was our mindset. We weren't going to lose. We were going to work out how to win. Um, so you really went over there with the vision that you're going to stay there and uh, it's going to take as long as it need to take, but we will achieve what we want to achieve. So there wasn't really a set period of time where you said, Look, Matt, we'll stick here for five years and, and see what yeah. happens and maybe assess from there. This was a continually evolving journey, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And I think when we first went over there, it was crazy. Like, we moved to this little town called Chantau. It was like the middle of nowhere in about two hours south of Shenzhen. And there was literally no other expats that were there, no Westerners. Unbelievable. And we rented this little apartment, I remember. it was. We had no money as well. We had $20,000 loan for my parents. So we, we rented this little apartment and I think it cost like 25 bucks a month to, to rent and we were on the 8th floor and there was no lift. So you'd have to like walk up and down the stairs every time you need water or anything. The solid uh, commute. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then from there we, we literally, well, I ended up getting in a little bit of trouble actually because I was so naive and so young. I was only 18. And so we had to like leave Dantau and then the person I was with originally, a guy that I met at university when I was 17, Joe, he left to come back to New Zealand and my brother came over and we went back into to, um, Guangzhou and then we rented this little sort of factory space. It was tiny. It was this tin shed, like literally mm. the small shed in China in a place called Bangshan Daodao outside of Guangzhou. And um, yeah, we, we spent a bunch of that money that we, that we had that loan from my parents on an injection molding machine. Oh, wow. And we... Sort of my cousin at the time, Simon, welded this, this production line up. And then we sort of employed our first Chinese uh, employees for our little factory. And we started making our first product, which was a hot air balloon. And then we ended up sort of deciding that we had to make some more products. And so we looked online and we copied a company called Night Eyes. And we made this Night Frisbee. And we copied mm. another company called that were making these sort of wooden money banks that were the shape of animals. And you fed the coins down their throats and they went down to their bellies. And I ended up taking both these products to, to New York Coiffia really early on. I would have been 18 or 19. Oh, wow. And I'd sold them to this distributor called Schilling. And uh, on the first day, I had them on this booth and I was sort of there sort of trying to sell them to any kind of retailer that came on. But within, I think, the first two hours, this guy comes screaming onto the booth and he's yelling and screaming at the, the guy, David, who owns the distributor, saying, this, this night frisbee, it's a complete copy. It breaches all our patterns, all our IP. You need to take it off the booth. So 
within those first two hours, David came over and said, need to take this mic because we got the booth, the guys from on, you're breaching all those patents. I didn't even know what patents were. Mm. We take this down. I thought, well, that's okay. I can still sell my, my money bank. And well, I, well, that didn't last long either because some lady <laughs> had a booth, just a couple of booths down that her whole business had been for 20 years making these kind of animal money bags. And so she, I thought the first guy was crazy. This lady came on and she was basically screaming and spitting in my face. Next level. And um, so then David got me to take those down as well. And I sort of had to go back to China within day one of this trade show with my tail between my legs. Yeah, wow, well, we actually probably need to look at this, this IP thing and, and start oh, trying to innovate some of our own ideas. So that probably gives you a level of like the naivety in terms of, you know, where we were at in those early days. But I think this is what really interested me about your journey. It was almost like this realization you had. So you moved halfway around the world, so determined to make this successful business, no matter what. But we're probably so initially focused on chasing these deals that the products are almost a piece in the puzzle. Would that sure. be fair to say? So it's, yeah. I think, until you, I think you've put this yourself before, but when this focus shifted to building better, more desirable products, that's when everything else started to fall into place for you. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I think so. We, we, we managed to, we were so naive and so bad at what we did that we were developing products or distributing products that were really not very good. Mm. And we never, ever got any reorders. So we'd like hustle, I'd hustle like customers all around the world. I think they're going to go after like the biggest retailers. Mm. And I actually really believe that the products that we were doing were actually generally really, really, really good. Mm. And that sort of confidence in our own products, even though they were terrible, allowed me to kind of break down these doors and some of the biggest retailers. And so we'd get orders from all these big retailers and then we'd never get a reorder because the product would never sort of sell through that yeah, retail. Sure. It was a real journey to sort of learn, you know, what the market sort of fit was for toys and how to develop toys that sold and how to make the whole sort of puzzle fit together. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, we were terrible at it. But I would say in those early days, we got 0% success in terms of reorders. And then we slowly started to get better. And what I kind of learned was that really it was more a combination of soft innovation rather than hard innovation that was far easier to communicate to customers. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is hard innovation is something so innovative that the market doesn't really understand what it is. And it takes a lot of communication, a lot of marketing to kind of get that level of understanding. But so it's smaller it's incremental. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you can win in certain areas in an established market and just do it better in that much, you know, that much better in lots of different areas, so lots of mm. different soft innovation, it's far easier to communicate and you can win far more easily. So sort of over time we became better and better and better at that. And and that's kind of what's driven us to, you know, now be what the third largest privately held toy company in the world in the sixth, wow. sixth, like, so overall in a, in a really short period of time. That's incredible. Million dollar in revenue a year mark. And so it's been in, in, in the toy business alone. And so it's been, a, it's been a real journey, but learning that differentiation and learning how to, almost I feel like I'm an exchange, right? I'm taking in all this information from retailers. I'm learning what the trends are. I'm looking at the consumer data. I'm looking at what's working. I'm mm. talking to different people. And you're kind of like an exchange, you're getting all this information and then you're filtering out and then trying to work out you know, what type of categories you should develop in and, and, and how to design in those categories, those soft innovations to, to win. Is it quite difficult specifically around toys? I mean, as you've previously put as well, it's a continually changing industry where trends are, you know, in and out the door within a six-month period. How does Zuru specifically, I guess, keep ahead of your competition? And are there specific points in your design process, I guess, that are really effective at, I guess, responding to these evolving trends? Look, we have an absolute incredible team our design development team and it is broken down the designers are broken down into tiny little areas so okay. every 
area is done at such a high at such a high level now. I would say we're best in best in class, best in world mm. uh, at what we do and what we execute. From a from a trend product kind of point of view, in terms of how we select developing and tracking those trends, really it comes down to a few people. So our creative director, I would say, is the best in the world, and it was, and you know myself, my brother, um, really are like tracking what's going on, um, mm. and then we filter that into the design development team, and they really add their polish and, and creative juices to it. Yep. But from a top line macro level, we really decide what areas we're going after, what trends we're going after. And then mm. we sit down, literally, we have like a four-day brainstorm. We do it about twice a year. Okay. Um, Adam and Matt, we sit down and we look at all the data from all around the world. So we'll get all the retail data. We'll look at all the Amazon data, all the top selling data, um, all the MPD data. We'll get um, all this feedback from, you know, from retailers. And you almost, you, you have a sense anyway where the market's going because you're in all these categories. We're in, yep. you know, so many categories of all our brands. So you really have a sense anyway of, of where mm. things are going, where the trends are going, mm. looking at all the editive sets. And then we basically just sit down and we brainstorm and we brainstorm under all of our umbrella brands. We have what you're going to target toys, probably about 17 umbrella brands. It's alive, robo alive, smashes, rainbow corns, mini brands, a bunch of balloons, shop water. So you go across all of our brands and then we really look to innovate within those verticals um, mm. and just stay on trend. And it's an amazing thing. If you, if you stay on trend within your verticals and within your brand umbrellas, you can't really go wrong. And so whilst it's a very, very, very fast moving industry, we redevelop about 50% of our entire product line every year. And wow. we're working in every type of manufacturing form that you can imagine, you know, flash to roto, injection to electronics, to, I mean, it's just everything. And we're doing that at scale, and then that yeah. product can be gone within six months. So it is a frighteningly fast industry. And if you can become the best in the world at building a massive toy company, you can get really feel like you can almost do anything because mm -hmm. it really is a university of working at scale at pace. And, you know, every toy has sometimes, you know, 70, 80, 90 parts that are individually designed tool put into production at scale and that product can be gone. We mm. worked out that we produce, we are tooling over 500 sets of molds a month in our toy company. And we're designing upwards of three and a half thousand individual toys a year because for wow. example take a collectible brand like smashes or mini brands mm. we're designing a hundred collectibles in each of those brands every six months so it's like a hundred different toys that are gone within six months and so in all our collectible brands so we're designing about three and a half thousand individual toys with hundreds of individual parts, parts. Many of them. and this is something you've spent a lot of time developing over the years right is the manufacturing capability over in china which i think you've said your your brother matt in particular is is a bit of a genius with can you tell us a little about the setup that you do have over, over there with the automation and the robotics setup and just the, sure. so we, the sheer so amount of time you've invested into that? Yeah. So our toy business is very much split into what we call three verticals. And so one is what we call our value-driven brands, which are ever, evergreen. So take our X-Shop brand of dart blasters. We're number two mm. in the world. We produce about 42 million dart and water blasters a year globally. Wow. And we focus that on less development of new items it's quite restricted quite tight in terms of developing new items every year but because our positioning is we want to be half the price of nerf on the shelf but as good a quality if not better yes we've automated the whole manufacturing process so a whole dart blaster is put together by robots from plastic wow. granules to impact to in master carton by robots and we built those off factories so 
all of our value brands, we design that maintain in house or the software in house. None of the manufacturing flows type product exists. It has to be designed um, uh, specifically and tailored to, to those individual brands and pipelines. So it's quite complex. We have about 54 acres of building space, which is That's our incredible. own factory. So imagine 54 acres of, yeah, uh, just, on a, just on a toy side and we're, we're building far more on the consumer goods and FMCG side. And almost half of that now is, is actually automated um, and automated production. So our max bricks line is automated. Our die cast line, metal machines, is all automated. So all the cars, it looks like real car production lines, but it's little oh, robots putting little wheels and painting them. Putting that them would be together. incredible to watch. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We've got lots of videos of it. And so even, you know, things like balloons all automated and it's complex. Like building that bunch of balloons factory, to put on a hundred balloons and little O-rings on straws and extrude it all and put it all in packs really complicated automation to build and so our our team we're about i think now about 250 automation and software engineers and that's what they sort of focus on specialize that and get into yeah. yeah and then we have what we call our innovation vertical so those are brands that are very innovation focused they're here today gone in a year gone in two years and so we're not investing in automation for those products and brands because it doesn't make sense they're not going to be here for very long mm-hmm. and so those verticals we maybe outsource the manufacturing okay for. And so that's, you know, brands like Mini Brands or Rainbow Corns or Smashes, Bush, um, lots of those type of brands, um, Pets Alive. And then we have what we call as our licensing vertical. So that's sort of our licensed brand. So last year, Baby Shark was a big one. You would know mm. Sean, Baby Shark. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Kids, kids love it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have our licensed brand. And that, that's probably the smallest part of our portfolio, just because we don't like relying on licenses. Um, it's not mm. a very stable business as well. It goes up sure. and down. So. Our evergreens are very stable. Our trend brands are, are just sort of explode and can become huge very quickly and, and then can kind of disappear overnight as well. Mm. You know, we were the first to create the fidget trend three mm. years ago. The fidget spinner and fidget cube. And we signed the fidget cube, which was one of the biggest Kickstarters of all time. I think it raised nine million on Kickstarter and that set off wow. probably the biggest trend of all time in toys. And we were making some obscene amount of fidget cubes and fidget spinners a day, I think, you know, in the range of a million units a day. Wow! Um, through that through that trend, but literally within within eight months, mm. it's gone from a huge volume to, to zero, to completely zero. So and that's how it works. You know, the trend, isn't it? That's a incredible. That blows up. And then- hey, now I mean, this success obviously hasn't come overnight, but it, it, it really does feel like you've been incredibly methodical in testing and aligning a multitude of components. Um, like as you've talked before, the direct to retail model, in-house robotics and automation technologies, which we've just been touching on now. Um, but continually critiquing these consumer needs and the portrayal of the product to resonate with these specific markets. So with your involvement with Ruskell and Friends, Nude and Monday, what learnings have you taken from Zuru and been able to apply across these other brands that you've started to become involved? Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, to start out, I, toy business is the ultimate diversity, as I touched on earlier. And mm. I've really kind of been looking in the last three years and thinking, man, this toy business is, you can be good at this, surely building a product that you don't really ever change and you automate and you build all the production you know, capabilities that we have and having a product that we can just keep shipping and selling and, and building on it and building mm. on market for the world on it would be, would be fantastic. And I was starting to create, I guess, a thesis that big brands can no longer lock up challenger brands due to what I called my four big macro shifts. Mm. And I was studying brands in America that were essentially playing from the same playbook. So Halo Top Ice Creams, John Dolphin Valuation, Harry's Razors, Pierre, you know, there's a, there's a, the list goes on of these sort of new age digital driven challenger brands. Mm. And so my thesis was very much that big brands can no longer lock up these challenger brands because of these four macro changes, the first of which is 
is the rise of data and highly efficient, highly targeted advertising. The fact that Mm. Google and Facebook have 29,000 data points on every individual now, the AI machine learning behind ad targeting is just becoming more and more advanced almost every year. Mm. The fact that if I have a segmented audience, or or give you an example, if I wanted to target someone within a 10 kilometer radius of where I'm sitting now that was interested in French bulldogs, I can find six people that are and I can serve them an ad on French bulldogs every single day. That is Mm. a massive shift from the last 40 years of blanket advertising and having mm. to spend tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising to, to reach the consumer base. Yep. So now you've got a very efficient way of, of reaching an audience. So we calculate you can build a brand up to sort of 25, 30 times more efficiently than you could just 10 years ago. That's incredible. And then you've also got, I mean, there are other shifts that we say, like reviews are coming as relevant to brand. So very much product is now king. It used to be that a brand validated purchase. Now you might put reviews, see how many stars it is and the brand becomes secondary. So product is really king in the sense of feedback society. We looked at probably the major shift along with the rise of data is the rise of the, the new age consumer. Mm-hmm. So you've got millennials and Gen Zs that are not only consuming brands, but they're consuming advertising in totally different ways now. Yep. And they are far more skeptical of big brands and they're far more willing to try new brands. So McKinsey did a study and it found that 70% of millennials, if given the choice, would no longer buy the same brand for their parents. But then they're looking for brands that align with their values. So they're looking for things within their brand, pillars like sustainability, authenticity, transparency, purpose, things that they can align with. And so you've got a consumer that is changing the way that consumer is advertising, changing the way they want to consume brands, and you've got a really efficient way now. Mm. So the enormous macro shift that's happening. And so I was kind of looking at this, looking at how these US brands are doing it and creating, I guess, this thesis that we could actually go in and now with the power of data and a new consumer go in and disrupt, disrupt. certain categories. Yeah, awesome. I guess I then looked at the, yeah, I then I guess I looked at the fact that while consumer goods companies globally dominate 80% of consumer packaged goods, it's complete duopolies in almost every single category. And a lot of the commodity categories that are artificially high because they're dominated by these duopolies. If you take pet food, most people associate pet, uh, Mars and Nestle with you know, confectionery, but actually pet food is, you know, it's $18.5 billion of Mars is $32 billion in turnover. They're a complete mm. duopoly in that space. And through those duopolies, they get lazy, they have a trend supply chains, they manage to control you know, pet food, the vets, and they can actually despect the product more and more and more over time. And because they've got this monopoly, they can control the market and they can control the margins of delivering to their retail partners. So there's a real opportunity to come in and make a better product and make a more relevant product, you know, solve the commercial problems for the retail partners in these categories and, and really reach this, this new age audience in these segments um, with brands that they can relate to. And so that was kind of the, the I guess, my, my thought process going into Bread mm. um, through Edge um, about two and a half years ago. And, and the first project was Rascal and Friends, um, yeah. which obviously um, scaled up to be this a phenomenal success. We've launched in 27 markets around the world. Um, every major retailer from Tesco's to Walmart in the US, Walmart Canada, to Coop in Italy, to Diem in Germany, across Belgium, Scandinavia, across France, we'll we've launched it. it all across Asia. What's incredible yeah, so to me about this is that- we're shipping a few billion by year three. This process, I think, that you're really starting to dive into and apply across these different industries is incredibly, um, not just disruptive, but almost becoming more important in some ways in the product itself, though, just in terms of how you're approaching these different industries. Um, you, you have I, sell a product, I, sell a, I sell a solution. I like that. 
Well, I mean, sell a, a product, sell a solution. And I always say that there's, you know, there's five, and this is, this is kind of the secret sauce, I guess. <laughs> I don't always want to divulge it, but you know, like for me, for me, you know, ultimately being an entrepreneur is about persuasion. Mm. You're persuading a final consumer to buy your brand. You're persuading a big retailer, Walmart, to buy your brand. When I've bought, for example, a nappy, so I've only bought Pampers and Huggies for the last fifty years, persuading mm. them to buy right. So for me, persuasion is a huge part of 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 the process. And so I kind of built what I would call my six pillars of persuasion. And I, I really believe there's like a scientific approach to not only getting a final consumer on board, but also getting retailers on board or stakeholders mm. of business or your, your, your staff and motivating them. Like ultimately you're persuading people's vision or, or, or anything. And I always say there's kind of a little bit of science to it. And the, and the first step is always what I call credibility switch. So you have to put yourself in a position of authority on the subject. Mm. Whether you're selling a brand to a final consumer, you have to be credible, right? That brand has to be credible. Absolutely. Or whether you're going to a major retailer, you need to put yourself in a position of credibility on the subject you're talking about. So there's always a credibility switch. And then I always call the, the next step kind of the solution switch. And what that means is you're solving problems. You're not selling a product. Whether mm. that's for a retailer, whether you're solving the margin problem for them in a certain category, whether you're solving the, the issue of they're a legacy retailer and they need to remain relevant to these new Gen Z audiences or millennial audiences. Millennials are now the biggest spending group in the world. How do you as a legacy retailer remain relevant? So you're helping mm. them solve the problem. How, like, it's basically you're solving a problem in all of these categories. And so you're never really selling a product. And the, the next one is a likability switch. You have to be likable. You know, people have to like you. If you're going and selling a product, well, they have to like your brand. If they're going to engage in it and be want to be part of that community you're creating, they have to be likable as a brand. The last, and, and then the next one is, is what I call proof over promises. And so proof over promises is really, really important. Everyone promises that what they're doing is great or their product is great or what you need to show is anecdotal evidence. evidence so you're talking about the reviews and the, the reviews for the final consumer? Correct. For a final consumer, that is in the form of reviews of your product or there's like lots of different like proof accounts. When you're going to a retailer, it might be, you know, results from other markets or mm. you know, photos at retail, like hard proof, market share, like category incremental share, all of that proof, but you need to physically show it. You've been incredible with that through Monday in particular, though. I think the reviews that you've had, both in, I think, Monday in particular, Monday here, you've had some incredible reviews um, here in Australia, but also endorsements around the world, which... I think it'd be very I mean, well Monday publicized through the social um, social channels, which have been um, yeah, I mean, Monday has been Monday has been a masterclass on how to build and design a brand and build a community that people want to be part of, and it is a masterclass in New Age marketing. Mm. Because my view, and I'm learning a lot here as well, marketing is shifting; it's changing. This mm. narrative of creating a 15 second, 30 second commercial telling you to buy something those days. Are are going and going to be gone in 10 years. It's really now about rich, authentic storytelling. It's about layers. Mm. It's about lots of innovation within the marketing. I always say, you know, we're, we're in the business of building brands, not products. And well, actually, Jamie was the one that, <laughs> my partner was the one that kept telling me that, you know, we're in the business of building brands, not products. And we need to be constantly innovating from a marketing standpoint. And so creating rich layers of, you know, authentic storytelling content. And if you look at Monday, it is genius in its execution. Forbes US actually reached out to feature it as one of the digital brand launches of the year globally. Oh, wow. That's incredible. In terms of the results, I mean, in New Zealand, we took 27% market share in 14 days. 
perhaps never been done in a consumer goods category before. Rascals was almost similar mm. um, in terms of taking a big market share quickly. In Australia, it was even more successful. We overtook the market leader, Pantene, in five weeks. So Procter & Gamble, market leader, Pantene, has been the market leader in Australia for decades. We overtook them in five weeks in sales. And then we not only overtook them, we like doubled their sales. And these um, sales have been continuing? And- since uh, well, we ran out of stock because we did 39 times forecast. That will really hamstring you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're just getting back into stock now because it was, Monday had like a seven layer marketing approach. We had Georgia Fowler as a Facebook brand, Elevator yes. brand being an Instagram brand. And then we had the Monday News. So really leading tastemakers within their fields and mm. aspirational businesswomen. And each of them reflected certain elements of the brand. So Maggie Marilyn was a sustainability muse. She reflected the sustainability aspects of the Monday bottle. Beck Wadworth, who's a really successful entrepreneur and makes all this geared back minimalist kind of product. She was the minimalist yes. muse and reflected the minimalist nature of Monday. We always said with Monday, when we were designing the bottom, the whole aisle is screaming. Mm. Everything's screaming. The brightest, the loudest, have the most words. We were like, when everything else is screaming, we're going to whisper. Mm-hmm. We're going to make something that whispers on the shelf and is really simple. So Beck kind of like, she her story of trying to give back minimalist products she reflected the minimalist nature of monday and we created a whole slate of content around her and how she has this mindset around minimalism mm. and then we had the creator muse which was samantha harris we had the beauty muse which was kristen fisher kristen fisher who's this sort of cult eyebrow specialist from sydney and has this huge sort of cult following yes. and so we went and created all of this rich authentic content around really leading tastemakers in their fields around the Monday brand. And that really elevated it. And then we partnered with Vogue and Half Bazaar with that content to amplify it. So it elevated the brand, feel as though it was a luxury brand, but then you could buy it for four or eight dollars, four to eight dollars in your supermarket. So you really are bringing the specialists in at the right point in the process to, you know, piece that puzzle together and tell that story. I just think it's like all of these layers, layers. So we call it Mm. our seven layer approach. And then below that we had our data driven influence. Uh, Sorry, we had our influence strategy below that so we had one and a half thousand Australian brand mm. and it's a very Instagrammable brand in terms of you know how many other shampoo or conditioner bottles look that Instagrammable is sort of Monday none right is the answer and then we had a data driven ad strategy below that we're optimizing mm. our ad strategy out to our target audience and the media strategy so the media picked it up it's on the front page of news.com.au frenzy over new um, shampoo described as liquid gold then the daily mail picked it up twice shoppers rushed to buy shampoo and then media avalanche and we had 50 outlets like pick it up so this process is like very refined with how we're designing and developing the brand and i will need um, to go and get some myself i can say i bought rascal <laughs> and friends for the for the little tops but, <laughs> but it is, it is yeah but it is a very new age approach to developing the brand and we're building 24 of them actually we've mm. launched eight so far um, across categories and I'm launching them across the world so it's really exciting and it's amazing for me to see that you know initially i thought maybe for every three we launched one would succeed one would fail and one would be okay but so far out of all eight we've launched all have been um, really really successful so formula works hey, a lot of these brands that you are working with at the moment as well a lot of them are kiwi businesses is that something you set out to do deliberately or is this really just happened um, more by chance in terms of these opportunities popping up and you think that you can i guess add value and drive them to the next phase globally yeah, and I, I mean, exactly. And so, you know, Rascal and Friends was initially um, granted to be a small uh, e-commerce business here, B2C. They were selling you know, their nappies online. And it was um, you know, a very small business, but they created a great product. And they created mm. what I would say is a relevant product. And mm. so, you know, they were kind of trendy in its design and 
formaldehyde, no chlorine, no lotions, no latex. That was really relevant in, in many respects. And that's what I really like about it. I like that there was a big duopoly that dominated the, the, yeah. the, the market and I was sort of stale in their delivery and we could create some sort of fresh and new and exciting for a primarily millennial audience. Most mums are millennials or younger, right? So mm. they're really consuming their advertising the social as well. So it kind of picked all the boxes. The, um, where was I going with that? What was the question? <laughs> no, as, as, as I was saying, I guess the Kiwi businesses that yeah, um, exactly, you, yeah. so, you're so looking at that. driving, but there's a, a thread there that you've obviously identified that you feel you can work with and add some real value to just in taking them to the next step, which might work yeah, in a so little bit my, for your Yeah, exactly. So my thought for us was like create a great product. So how do we amplify mm. that and take that to the world? And that's you know, effectively what we've done you know, all around the world. And then you know, Dose & Co is another one, which is, is, is super exciting. It was a small startup here in New Zealand. And, oh, look, Chloe Kardashian's all over that now. It's, it's... Yeah, it's actually not officially <laughs> in the company. So I'm not really allowed talking about it, but she keeps, um, she keeps posting. So it's kind of been in the, ma- in the media and the Daily Mail and, 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 and whatnot, her, her loving Dose & Co. So, it's, you know, we're, 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 we're really scaling that up. We launched about 20,000 doors in the US in November. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, we launched across Australia already, across foodies. It's already a, a huge success, taking massive chunk of the nutritional category mm. here in New Zealand in terms of market share. And, and so it's been pretty exciting to take sort of a primarily just e-commerce digital brand, small, and then just amplify, amplify that to the world. Yeah, awesome. Um, and so a lot of them, and, and nude pet food was, you know, he's a young kid who, who won New Zealand Young Enterprise at school. And, and I just sort of talked to them and they said he was one of the best I've ever seen. And so he was going to university and I told him, you're not going to university. We're going to work out a business to do together. And so we walked the supermarket and we were like, oh, that's incredible. Thinking, God, it's awful. Like how all the brands executed again. It's dominated by du- duopoly Mars and Nestle. I said, let's take on the pet food category. Yeah. And he's, he's so ambitious that he, he, he presented me a plan last week, which was you know, within 10 years, how we can be the biggest pet food manufacturer in the world. I said, Alistair, that's a long way to go. That means we're going to be doing $19 billion US turnover to become number one. And he said, no problem. Here's my plan. A hundred page long plan to get there. So, that's so it's awesome. pretty awesome to get this like yeah, ambitious talent. And I say that my job is being the confidence catalyst, right? Giving them the confidence that we can be the best, that we can everyone in the world and, and do a better job than anyone else. So yeah, a lot of them have come through sort of those avenues. And then a lot of them we're, we're, we're building completely ourselves. You know, we've got a lot of New Zealand talent in as long as, you know, all our talent around the world that mm. sort of work on a scale. So it's, it's super exciting. And one thing you touched on before as well, Rascal and Friends, you talked about the sustainability kind of components of, of that product. Is this a bit of a hamstring with some of the, the heavy kind of packaged plastic bits and pieces that you're, you're making with the likes of Zuru as well? Is, I can imagine that part of the, the market um, is incredibly hard to respond to without, what's a good way of putting it, heavily regulated encouragement from the government. I have a lot of views on this. You know, if you look at our Rascal's brand, we actually just last week launched Rascal's Eco and it's the mm. first truly eco diaper because a lot of it out there is total greenwashing yeah that's of course most of it's plant-based anyway it's just it's kind of greenwashing thing. so mm. i think our eco diaper is now 70 odd percent actually biodegradable the only thing we can't make biodegradable is sap which is the absorbency polymer yeah and yeah. so we've really worked hard on that over the last two years because it's important as you know a business but it's important for the brand that we continue to try and remain relevant because in 10 mm. years it's more and more and more important be sustainability pillars but if you look across our portfolio of consumer brands you know we're about to launch me yeah you know we've put no plastic in the packaging we've got biodegradable wrap around the tampons and liners we've got organic cotton core no synthetic dyes you know the whole brand all of the pillars around you know sustainability we're mm. launching our you know sustainable um, tissue brand called earth initiative which is okay. all bamboo fiber because bamboo 
grows in three months, fastest growing plant in the world. Its root structure stays there forever. Trees mm. take 20 years, you cut them down. They they're just far worse than the environment. With bamboo, you don't use any kind of pesticides in the growing process and it regenerates. Mm-hmm. And so it's all bamboo fiber. We're doing tissues and toilet paper and a, and a whole line there, um, which oh, wow. is shortly. So we've got tons of initiatives across consumer goods that are really trying to push the boundaries of you know, those sustainability pillars. How do we use recycled plastic in our materials? We're launching a brand in cleaning, which basically is completely refillable bottle and you just have like cartridges, essentially that. Um, for the, the cleaning product in them. So mm. you can use bottles over and over and over again. There's so many initiatives in consumer goods because that is one of our North Stars is how do we have sustainability pillars um, within everything we do and how do we keep pushing that envelope as innovating to get here. Mm-hmm. From a toy side, it's challenging because mm. toys are essentially plastic, but we have a huge amount of initiatives in place. Even, you know, take a bunch of balloons. We changed all biodegradable balloons. It's now all recycled plastic in the stems. We teamed up with TerraCycle. So people can upcycle our, you know, any plastic doors that are left over, we actually pay to get those upcycled and like, okay. sent back. So we have lots and lots of initiatives across lots of our product lines um, like this. And we have like a five-year plan in terms of removing lots of packaging. If you take up brand five surprise, it used to have all the surprises and little plastic tearaway bags. We've moved all like paper tearaway bags. Uh, just across the board, we're trying to do things and, and put initiatives in place to be uh, more environmentally friendly. But ultimately, my view is this, is that, Plastic is not the problem. Plastic is one of the great inventions of humanity. We need it. It secures the supply chain, food, medical, in terms of you drive your car every day, in terms of you use your phone. I mean, our world would not exist like it exists without plastic. Mm. So one of the biggest problems is single-use plastic. And there's no doubt, without question, single-use plastic, particularly in packaging, is Mm. a real problem. So how do we solve that problem? That has to come centrally, surely. It has to come through regulation. Yeah. Because the consumer chooses not to vote everyone says they want to be environmentally friendly when the Mm. price is more expensive you start playing in a tiny niche part of the market and i'm talking less than one and that becomes really difficult and unsustainable yeah and so the way to solve it is actually to do what france is doing what a is doing and even what big companies like pepsi and coca-cola are lobbying for in the u.s because they know as companies that you need to make the playing field equal you need to tax virgin plastic packaging you tax virgin plastic packaging, take plastic water bottles mm. made out of virgin PPE plastic. You need to use, you tax that virgin plastic bottle, it then lifts the price of that product from the shelf, which discard, you know, makes the consumer not want to buy the more expensive one. Mm. Create a revenue stream through that tax to put into recycling centers because you have to make the cycle work, work. economically. So you then, you then give tax incentives to anyone that wants to recycle plastic. They don't pay tax. And they get funded to do mm. it through that taxing of virgin recycled plastic. And then encourages manufacturers to use RPPED, recycled plastic. It then makes the price of that cheaper economically and the virgin plastic product more expensive. So it kind of balances the playing field. Yes. And it closes the loop to make it economically feasible to actually recycle plastic. Right now, it's not economically feasible. RPT is far more expensive than just using virgin plastic. Yeah. So until that is balanced. There's parity between the two. Yeah, it's parity, you can't solve the problem. And the only way to solve the problem is through regulation and other governments are doing it and putting it in place. And until we actually try and solve the problem from the macro level, individual consumers aren't going to solve the problem. Is that in the you landscape? Say, oh, the plastic water bottle is not going to solve the problem. So we need to solve it at a macro level, fundamentally. Do you think it's on the landscape and that might be happening in the near future? Or is this still a way away in terms of that dialogue with? Well, with I think it should be happening far sooner. 
and mm. governments overseas are putting it in place and we need to be looking to them as an example. And we need to be looking to precedent cases of government that do a good job around the mm. world of it. Even if you look at Scandinavia, they have these huge recycling bins at all their supermarkets and people just take, and most population does it and you get tokens back to scan yeah. it on your shopper. Just That's dump incredible. your plastic bottles back in there. And so they have these huge systems at the front of every supermarket and people just put the bottles in, they get tokens out, they get a discount on their shopping. So they're making it and easy for the consumers. Again, they're creating an incentive system to, to, to do it and they're creating a system which is a loop. And so we've got to think through the problem and think through the solution, mm. not just sit there and make knee-jerk reactions like banning single-use plastic bags. That ain't solving the problem. That's my, what I call micro-thinking, not macro. And so you need to think of it. From Sounds like out. more like a PR came for some political parties more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> hey Nick, you, uh, greatly appreciated your your time this afternoon. There's been some incredibly insightful, I guess, insights into your journey, but some of the the brands, particularly around Zuru and Nude and Monday, which you're working on at the moment. So, really appreciate your your time and your your insights today. So, so thank you very much. No worries. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Hey to our listeners. We're always, we're always, we're always looking for great designers. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. If anyone's listening, we can yeah, pass on Nick's email. <laughs> hey, thank you to our, um, thank you to listeners for, for dialing in today, listening to the Designs Institute of New Zealand podcast. podcast. Um, keep an eye out for the next episode. We'd love you to share this on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can tag the Designs Institute of New Zealand and it helps getting the podcast out to new listeners. So, Kaki Kay for now, and we'll see you all again soon.